And so this morning, the word is about the word. Amen? Amen. So we're going to talk about the Bible. The, the actual book that the um, community groups are going to be uh, using is called How to Eat Your Bible. And it's basically a book that introduces us to reading scripture as a daily habit, as a daily practice. And it talks about some real practical w- ways to begin to incorporate that in our lives. Because it's not just about information, but it's about transformation, right? Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The title of the message this morning is delight yourself in his word. Delight yourself in his word. St. Jerome said, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ." And so I'm excited this morning to be here. I'm always excited to preach and to teach. And this is going to be a, a little bit of a teaching. This is going to be some, some information as well. But this is a word that we need as the family of God. And in particular, the contemporary church needs to be centered, recentered on the word of God. I've said before, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what Oprah thinks. Poor Oprah. I'm always picking on Oprah. But it doesn't matter what we think. My opinions are of no value to you. It it matters what the Word of God teaches. That has to be the authority in our lives. The authority in this church is the Word of God. Amen. We have denominational distinctions. We have certain preferences, certain cultural mandates. But the reality is it's all about His Word. And so turn to your neighbor and say, it's about his word. Sometimes you need to be reminded of this stuff, right? So this morning we're going to talk about the word of God. In particular, we're going to explore its unique place in the world. And my prayer is that after this sermon, the Bible has a unique and primary place in our lives. The definition of unique is being the only one of its kind, unlike anything else. Not just a good book, but unique distinctive, unlike anything else, and primary is of chief importance, importance, principle, so that the Bible have a unique and primary place in this church and in our lives, amen? Amen. And my prayer is that we're motivated to give give the Bible that place in our lives. So my desire really is twofold. Right, I want us to see how precious and amazing the word of God is, And I want to stir up our hunger and passion to read it more and more, to learn from it together, to read it, to study it, to read it devotionally. And so many of us are walking around and we're confused and we're hurt. We're unsure of some things. Maybe we don't want to admit it, but maybe we feel a bit lost. And Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So this morning, we're going to look together at the Bible. Lord, would you just have your way even now? Would you prepare our hearts and minds and spirits to receive your truth, God? It's all about what you have for us, God. So again, everybody here, everybody listening, watching online, God, just have your way. Open our minds and hearts and spirits to your truth, the only truth that has the power to transform lives and eternities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read Psalm 19, 7 through 11, and, you know, sometimes we read the Bible, you know, to get through it, right? You know, we have, like, read through the Bible in a year and all these things, and that can be good, but sometimes the goal of the Bible is to, like, get through it, and I think we lose the value of of quiet meditation, 
of just allowing pieces of scripture to just meditate prayerfully on them, allow them to change, to find their home in our heart. And so this is not just beautiful words, though it is beautiful words. But this is, this is instructive, this is practical. It says, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the first half is informational, right? It's, it's telling us a statement of fact. And then the second half is the, is the inspirational, is, is speaking to our heart. It's talking about the practical application. It says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now again, absolutely beautiful language, but I submit to you that that contains truth like no other. Beyond poetry or beautiful language, truth that has the power from the beginning of time till now to change our lives, to change our eternities. And so all, all Christian Fellowship Center can offer you, all any church can offer you, all I can offer you is the word of God. The only power in this place is the spirit of God, the word of God, the person of Christ. That is it. And so preaching is asking God to use us as a vessel to step aside. And you've heard me say it a million times. I want to hear at the end of a sermon, it's great to hear, you know, what a great sermon. That's wonderful. I want to hear what a great Savior. All preaching, the Bible itself points to the person of Jesus Christ. And our goal is that we fall deeper in love with him. The gospel message is God's relentless pursuit of a rebellious people. Its central message is a story of redemption, which is the best kind of story. And so Paul says in Romans 10, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. The value to memorize in Scripture is not to win at Bible trivia, although that's cool. The, the, the value to memorize in Scripture is that it finds its home in our heart, that when we go through situations, it will encourage us, it'll motivate us, it'll correct us, it'll challenge us, it'll convict us, but that, that Scripture becomes living and active in our lives. Verse 9, Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, it doesn't matter your cultural background, your denominational background. It doesn't matter your nationality. None of those things matter. If you're in Christ, he is Lord of all. You're part of the family of God. There is no distinction anymore. 
14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how they are to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how they are to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, we have to hear the word. Something supernatural, there's a transaction that takes place. When we hear the word of God being preached, it has power to activate faith in us. You know, how many people have heard um, preach the gospel wherever you go and if necessary use words attributed to St. Francis? Anybody's ever heard that quote? He didn't say that. If he would have said that, he would have been wrong. What he said was, if you're walking to go preach, you're walking better be preaching. Because it's a both end. It's not an either or. If we do wonderful things and we, and we live a good life but we never tell anybody, they don't know the truth of the gospel, they're not gonna act, that's not going to activate faith. And so it's a both and. And so the principle's nice, but it has to be both and. It has to be our lives line up with the word of God and that word of God preached. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's saying salvation comes in response to hearing the word of God preached. Christ and him crucified. Not celebrity preachers, not stadium seating, not the best worship band. I mean, we have the best worship band. How about, how about just an amazing round of applause? Just incredible. But it's about Christ and him crucified. It's about in faith responding to the word of God. I read this. An unknown writer said, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's charter. In other words, it's the central thing. It's the most significant. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design. The glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory. It should rule the heart. And it should guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, and to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Some of us are still living a dead life. We want to live a resurrected life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Not a life of death and despair, but a resurrected life. In John 5, 39, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders who knew the word. Their problem wasn't theology. They didn't have bad theology, right? They, they, they understood intellectually the truth. They just didn't understand the practical application of it. Their problem was, was, a, was a heart problem. And they used the truth to manipulate and control and lord over. And so Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures point us to Jesus. The Bible is our ultimate authority. It is our roadmap and our compass. So this will be a preaching and a teaching, and I hope that you want to learn more. Because some of this stuff, some of you know, and perhaps some of you don't, but I love to learn. 
I just, I had, I, I, ha, I have to be stopped from learning. I just applied into a doctoral program, and then my wife said, you said you were going to wait a year. And I'm like, well, the last class ended in February. This starts in January. That's almost a year, right? Like, it starts in October. I want to go to the October one. Why? Because I love the Word of God. Because I want to learn more and more. Because I want to be able to preach and teach with authority that comes from Scripture, that comes from a correct understanding, correctly handling the Word of God. I told you before, it doesn't matter what I think. When you talk to me, you don't want my opinion. It doesn't matter my opinion. It matters the power that comes from the truth of God. Amen? Amen? That's all we have of any value. And so it's important that studying the Word of God is not just reserved for academics and theologians and pastors. It is for all of us. It is not an optional part of our Christian life. It is the center. And if we are to understand rightly the Word of God, if we are to not be taken out by the enemy, if we are to be empowered to minister, we have to understand the Word of God. Ready for me to upset you now? I'm going to make some, I'm going to make some friends. In the first service, people are happy about this. Whose favorite verse is Jeremiah 29:11? I know the plans I have for you. It's always a whole bunch of people. So here's the thing. The big, the big problem, 99% of the time, when we misapply and misunderstand the Bible, is that we try to make, I'm going to use two big words, but they're not really, they're not a big deal. The exegetical analysis, the exegetical understanding means, in a, in a nutshell, what did it mean there and then? What was the original intent? The hermeneutical is, what does it mean here and now? What is the application to us? Most of the time when people make mistakes with understanding Scripture, it's because they try to take the here and now, the application, and they disregard the there and then. And you can't do that. It can never mean here and now what it didn't mean there and then. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't speak to us at different times. That doesn't mean there's not encouragement and value. But that means you have to have a proper understanding of what the intent was. Who was the author? What was the occasion of the writing? What was, you know, what was the context of the situation? Who was the audience? And so if you take Jeremiah 29, 11, which you can make a case that God ultimately wants the good for all of us who love him. But do you think the disciples read Jeremiah and thought when they were going to be martyred for their faith that God's will is to prosper and harm them? Do you think when you have somebody dying or their child is dying that they think, oh, Jeremiah 20 and 11, this must be God's plan to prosper me and harm me? See, if you want to take that, you have to take the 70 years of captivity that's involved in the Babylonian captivity that's also involved in Jeremiah, right? So again, you can make the case, ultimately, in a spiritual sense, God wants our best, but it's important that we understand context. That was just one example. Again, do I believe God wants what's best for us, and he's a good father? All those things are true. I just wouldn't hang my hat on that particular verse to say that. From a pastoral care perspective, it's confusing when people are struggling, and someone else comes along and says, hey, Joe, you know, God just wants to prosper you and not to harm you. The worst thing that ever happened in human history was the cross. And through that, our redemption came. So God's going to allow difficulties to come in our lives for the greater good, for his purposes that we may or may not know. I shared my testimony yesterday at a church in Swansea. I said the worst day of my life was the day I went to Teen Challenge. The best day of my life was the day I went to Teen Challenge. Because that was the place where I would surrender, 100% surrender my life to Jesus Christ. And nothing's been the same since.
Does ultimately God want to work all things for the good of those who love him? Sure, ultimately. Do we see that all the time in the flesh? Absolutely not. And so we want to learn more about God. We want to learn about his word, his truth. And so the Christian Bible is a collection of 66 different books. It's divided into two sections, the Old and New Testament, written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, three different languages, yet it presents a unified message about God and his plan and purpose for humanity. 39 books make up the Old Testament, written around 1500 B.C. to 400 B.C., starting with the book of Genesis, ending with the book of Malachi. The Christian Bible and the Jewish Bible contain the same 39 books in different orders, but the same books. The Roman Catholic Church includes 15 other writings in their Old Testament called the Apocrypha. Some of us know that. A lot of us grew up Catholic. That word means hidden books. Now, for a long, long time, these were part of the Bible. They were never considered canon, but they were books that had historical value. People ask me all the time, are they bad? No, they're not bad. They have historical value. They have devotional value. They're just not scripture. They're not canon, and they weren't added to the Bible, and they were probably more of a result of the Reformation than anything else until about 500 years ago. They became part of the Bible, but they were in the, in the Catholic Church, but they had been around and they're not bad so people lost that they're just not scripture throughout the early centuries of the church few books were ever disputed and the list was basically settled by AD 303 so the, again the first 1500 years the, the apocrypha was considered good devotional literature just not part of the bible when it came to the old testament three important facts were considered one is the new testament quotes from or alludes to every Old Testament book but two. Jesus effectively endorsed the Hebrew canon in Matthew 23, 35, when he cited one of the first narratives and one of the last scriptures of his day. We know that the Jews were meticulous about preserving the Old Testament scriptures, and they had few controversies over what parts belong or do not belong. The, old te the uh, Roman Catholic Apocrypha didn't measure up. It's never been accepted by the Jewish people. The 27 books that make up the New Testament were written over a 50-year span. They deal with Jesus Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, the beginning of the Christian church, and instruction on how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. We all have a lot of people who say, I like to read the, old tes uh, the New Testament, but the Old Testament, you know, I just avoid that. You have to understand the full story, the Old Testament, to understand that Christ was the culmination, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the last sacrifice. He was, everything in the Bible points to him. I heard it said once that all good theology can be found in Genesis. You have the fall of man, you have redemption. There's a word called Christophany, that when it says they heard the, the, sound, of the, gar the sound of the footsteps in the garden, some scholars will say that's the pre-incarnate presence of God, that that was God in the flesh, that when sin came on scene, Jesus was immediately on scene. You see immediately the result of sin, starting with our own shame. They felt ashamed and so they hid. Immediately the result of sin was an identity crisis. Then there was conflict with God and conflict with one another. We begin to blame. Everybody blames everybody else. And some of us are still living in shame, and some of us are still living blaming everybody else. 
But all of that in the Old Testament, you see all of that God's unfolding plan that ultimately points to Jesus. So it's not just about the books that you understand more or that it may be more accessible. It's about learning, studying, understanding. Talk to the pastors. We have more resources now in this world than we ever did. Make sure they're good resources. But there's commentaries to help you. There's pastors and leaders to help you. The Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew with a little Aramaic, the New Testament exclusively in Greek. And yet these diverse authors from diverse backgrounds present one unified portrait of God's plan and purpose. It's different kinds of literature, just like we don't read you know, a comic book or a, you know, a poetry the same way we would read a history. The Bible's filled with all different genres. It contains history, poetry, humor, prophecy, romance, letters, biography, songs, journals, advice, laws, stories. So it is an entire library of different kinds of literature. The Bible is the first book ever to be printed on the printing press. By far the best-selling book of all time. The next best-selling book uh, sold less than a tenth of what the Bible has sold. Over 2,000 languages scripture has been translated into. And so when we say Bible, we're talking about these 66 books that have been the foundation of the Christian faith since its beginning. As Americans, we're Bible rich. We have well over 30 different English translations. 85% of Americans own at least one Bible. The average number of Bibles people have in America is four. So people have asked me, I don't want to go too far off topic, but I want to address this because people say, well, who decided which book should be placed in the Bible? The simple answer is God himself decided that he was the final determiner. The theologian J.I. Packer said this, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. F.F. Bruce and other scholars said this, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canon list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired recognizing their innate worth and apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify classify the books as canon were both held in North Africa at Hippo in 393 and Carthage at 397. But what they did not do is impose something new on Christian communities. What they did do was codify what had already been in use. So scriptures are inspired by God and then recognized by such as man, not the other way around. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, we cannot be equipped to do the work of God the work Jesus calls us to do without the word of God in our hearts. We cannot export what we don't possess. We can give people our opinions. We can pontificate all of the Facebook on what we think about everything in the world. But if we don't have the word of God, we don't have power. What Paul's saying is that the fundamental characteristics of, of scripture, 
What makes these sacred writings is the fact that God himself breathed them out and they have their ultimate origin with him. The fundamental characteristic of being God-breathed makes the Bible useful, means it's practical, it means it's beneficial. The word relevant captures the meaning. It's because of the Bible's source that it has vital, practical relevance for our lives. It is not just a good book among other good books. It's the Word of God. And the relevance is seen in these four areas. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching focuses on the Bible as an instruction on how to live life. And so it assumes, this idea of teaching assumes that we're learners because only learners can be taught. Amen? I would rather have somebody who's teachable than gifted any day. Because, yeah, gifts only take us so far. You've heard me say our abilities are our liabilities because those are the things we can do without God. So we've got to be lifelong learners. We're all perpetual students. Not expected to all be academics or theologians, but to know the word of God. If we miss it, if we don't understand it, we're lost. Here's a story. The new pastor was asked to teach a junior high, high boys Sunday school in the absence of the regular teacher, so he decided to see what they knew. So he asked the boys, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And each of them looked at each other and they swore they didn't do it. They had nothing to do with it. It wasn't them. And so the pastor shook his head, and so at the next meeting of the elders, he was particularly distraught by this, and he brought it to the attention of the elders. And he told the whole story. He said, you know, these boys, I asked them, you know, who knocked down the walls at Jericho? And they said, it wasn't them. They didn't do it. And so one of the elders that had been there the longest, he stood up and he said, Pastor, I can see this has got you very worried, but i got to tell you, I've known these boys since they were little, and if they said they didn't do it, they didn't do it. Let's just take the money from the offering and pay for the walls. <laughs> funny, but not funny. Sad commentary on Bible knowledge in the church. And then there's this word rebuking, and it sounds kind of harsh, but rebuking just means confronting our wrong ideas. Some of us have some wrong ideas about some things. And the Bible needs to confront those wrong ideas. So this assumes that we have misconceptions, we have distortions about God, about ourselves, about life that need to be changed. I read a quote by Tim Keller recently, and he said, bad evangelism is... Bad evangelism is saying, I'm right, you're wrong, let me tell you why. Good evangelism is saying, you tell me about the God you don't believe in, and I probably don't either. In other words, if you've ever talked to somebody and they'll tell you why they don't believe in God or the reasons they have a problem, and then they describe God to you, that's not the God we believe in either. But they don't know that because they haven't read the Bible, and we, we better make sure that we've read the Bible so we don't fall into those mischaracterizations or distortions about the true nature of God. So when people talk to me, Pastor Brian, I have a problem with the church, and I have a problem with religious people, and I have a problem with all this stuff, and I'm like, amen. You know who Jesus had the biggest problem with? Religious people, the church of his day. But let's talk about him. Do you have a problem with Jesus Christ? We can talk about him. Because I'll tell people, at my church, we don't follow other Christians. We follow Jesus. Amen? It's the word of God that's our authority. So rebuking is confronting our wrong ideas. 
Correction is similar to rebuking, but it focuses on changing behavior instead of just beliefs. It's replacing bad actions with good actions. So when we're rebuked, when we're confronted with the truth of the word, correction means we ought to change that now. We ought to live differently. This assumes that we lose our way sometimes. That we can easily wander off course. That God will allow us to walk in circles for a bit. You ever have God bring you back to like the same situation or the same place to bring you right back around as if to say, you got another shot at this in his grace and in his mercy. But he'll bring us back to get us back on course to where he wants us to go. And then finally, training in righteousness focuses on the Bible's role and helping us together live the kind of lives that please God. This assumes that a life of integrity doesn't come naturally to us, that we need the Spirit of God, that we need the Word of God, that we need the people of God to come alongside us, that we would surrender ourselves and submit to Him. And so the Bible trains us to do that which we could not do on our own to live a life of integrity. We read the Bible not just to know about God, but to know who God to know, to know who God is, to know his heart and his character. It's his divine love letter to us. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than ever, any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It can't be active if you don't engage it. It can't have power if you don't have it in your life. When Jesus was tempted by the enemy, his response was the word of God. You know, when I was in Teen Challenge, away from my family, struggling with my addiction, my father's dying of cancer, every day I would wake up and say, I would say to God, I'm leaving today. I am done with this. Today's the day I am done. And you know what he used to sustain me? His word. Every moment, I would be alone with my Bible, and I would be crying out to God, and his, his word nourished me and sustained me. And I would say, even in my rebellion, okay, Lord, I'm going to stay today, but I'm leaving tomorrow. You just got to reserve, you know, like. But today, he, gave, he, gave, he gives us what we need for the moment. But it, it, I heard good sermons, I had good conversations with people, I had good counselors, I didn't have Dave Laporte good counselors, but I had good counselors, right? But it was the word of God that made the difference because it had power and it convicted me when I needed convicted and it challenged me when I need challenging and it sustained me when I needed sustaining. But we have to allow it, we have to engage it. We can't have revival in our lives if we don't allow God's word into our heart. And I want revival. And revival, that doesn't mean I want all of you to change. I do. But people say, oh, you know what? This country needs revival. My neighbor needs revival. My wife needs revival. The government needs revival. You know when revival begins? When I say, I need revival. I don't want to be the same right now, tomorrow as I am today. I want to be different. I want to go deeper. I want to cling to what is good and hate what is evil. I don't want to deal with the same sin in my life over and over again. Amen. I want revival. I'm going to cry out. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the scriptures until God removes the idols from my heart Amen. and takes his rightful place on the throne. Yes. Our idea of revival is we want everyone around us to change. God's idea of revival is we have to want to change. Right. 
So I want to look at the story of King Josiah, who became a good king after a string of bad kings. Judah had eight good kings, 11 bad. Israel had 19 kings, 208 years, all bad. People can read about the bad kings and they blame God. People that don't read the Bible. Say, well, why God had the whole bad kings? Why did that happen? I'll tell you what happened. Ready? 1 Samuel 8. Israel asked for a king. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. God, we want what everybody else has. No, but you're a special nation. No, but we want what everybody else has. No, but you're a chosen people. No, but we want what everybody else has. No, but I have a specific plan for you. No, but we want what everybody else has. Okay. Okay. And when they said, God, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. See, when I gave my testimony, I said, I made Jesus my savior because I needed a savior. I needed saving, but he wasn't my Lord because I still wanted to be the Lord. I wanted both ways. I wanted to be saved, but I still wanted to be the king. I still wanted to be in charge. And they want to have it their way. And he's saying, look, it's not you as the leader they're rejecting, it's me. They're rejecting God. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing this to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Like, okay, you want a king to be in charge? Just so you know, it's not going to turn out well. Oh, you want to be in charge? Okay, that's fine. You can be in charge. And then we blame God when everything falls apart. Right. I gave you what you wanted. This is what you asked for. You wanted to be the king. I think the way we're heading at, as a country, we might be better off with an eight-year-old king. King Josiah began his reign at the ripe old age of eight years old. Second Kings. 22, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. And my computer froze. Talk amongst yourselves. (laughs) Technology. Here we go. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 10. Woe unto thee, O land, when thy king is a child, but happy art thou, O land, when the king is such a child. See, Josiah being young hadn't yet been affected by his father and his grandfather in a negative way. You ever see like a kid who had like the worst parents, the worst upbringing, and they turn out to be like the greatest kid, right? It's almost like despite what they saw or because of what they saw, they said, you know what, I'm not going to be like that. 
I, I don't want what they had. I don't want to see things go the way my parents' life went, so I'm going to do things differently. Josiah was that kind of a kid. And he saw the errors of their ways, and God gave him grace to be warned and to do different. Ezekiel 18.14 says, Behold, he has a son who has observed all of his father's sins which he committed, and having observed them does not do likewise. Second Kings continues, tells us about his mother's name. She was from Bozketh. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, Josiah, and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside from the right or to the left. I love that description. He did what is right in the, in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't turn to the right. He didn't turn to the left. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't all over the place. He kept his focus. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of the temple, and have them pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Josiah was the kind of leader he wanted to rebuild the temple and he picked good people that he could trust, supervisors, and he said, I trust you. Pay the workers their fair wage, buy the supplies. You don't even have to worry about reporting to me because I know you're good people because you're honorable people because a good leader surrounds himself with good and honorable people. So he's trying to rebuild the temple. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Surprisingly, the book of the law was missing in the church. Now, we can preach a whole sermon on that, right? Sadly, in churches today, in the lives of Christians today, I think the word of God is missing sometimes. You go to churches and you hear people talking about everything but Jesus, everything but sin, everything but the word of God. And so, ironically, the word of God was lost in the house of God. And so he's rebuilding the temple, and he stumbles upon the book of the law. And it says he gave it to the secretary who read it. Then he went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord. They've entrusted it to the workers and the supervisors. And then he informed the king, the high priest has given me a book. And so he read from it in the presence of the king. And verse 11 says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. Even though he was good in the eyes of the world, he was a good king, he still recognized how far he was from God. He still recognized his own sin. Hearing the word of God read caused repentance in his heart. So much so that that would change everything else. That that would be the, the foundation that that would be the change agent for the reform that was to come. And so he gave these orders, verse 12, to Hilkiah the priest. Go and acquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words concerning in this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So he's like, wait a minute. We gotta find out what this says. We gotta make sure we let everybody know 
Because we have strayed, all of us, far from God, and something needs to be done. Oh, that that would be our response to the gospel. Lord, we have strayed. I have strayed from you, God, and something needs to be done. Hilkiah the priest went to speak to the prophet who lived in Jerusalem. Josiah wants to change things. He wants to bring reform. He's committed not to the past, not to the old ways, but to the Lord, to the new ways. So he had, he had begun this project to rebuild the temple. Good religious work, right? It's this rundown mess of a temple. And during the renovations, they find the book of the law. And he carried the scrolls to the scribe, who read the scrolls, reported it to the king, read it to him. And as a result, there was mighty revival in Judah. But the revival began with a leader taking the word of God and bringing it back to a place of priority in the hearts of the people. Revival in our lives begins when we allow the word of God a place of priority in our lives. And his reform consists in chapter 23 of getting rid of old idols. So I want to make three points. And the first one, the first point, verse 8, go find the book. Find the book. Is your Bible just a, you know, a keepsake? You know, is it just collecting dust? Or does it have a priority place in your life? Go find the book. I remember growing up, we had Bibles all around the house. Every time somebody died, we were Catholic. Every time somebody died, you get a Bible in a wooden box, and it sits on the shelf. And I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, I don't know how old you pick up the Bible, you try to read. I'm like, I don't, but this doesn't make any sense. It's different when God gives you spiritual eyes and you read it not just as a book, but you read it with spiritual eyes, with with an open heart. It's a manual for living. It shouldn't be stuffed with keepsakes off to the side. See, here's the thing. The loss of the word of God was both the result and the cause of leading God's people away from him. It was the result of it, and it was the cause of it. In other words, the reason they behaved the way they did is because the word of God didn't have a place in their heart. And then as they continued to behave that way, the word of God stayed not having a place in their heart. Because the further they get, you know, our kids, our grandkids, what are they going to know about God? Just what we tell them, are we going to be the only Bible they read? Or are we going to point them to Scripture? Because the more watered down it gets, the less of a priority things of God are in my life, the next generations, eventually, it gets so removed that they don't even know the Word of God. They don't even have a place for it. They don't even own a Bible. You know that this generation doesn't even have a context for sin? The word sin, you try to talk to people, it, they don't even have a place for sin. It doesn't even, that word doesn't even have any power in this post-postmodern culture. It's everybody's, you know, just do your own thing. There's no sin. There's no objective standard. The loss of the word of God was the result and cause of people falling and living away from him. And the rediscovery of the Bible brought many returning to God. So go find the book. And the next point, verse 10, go read the book. When people found the word of God, they read it. They rejoiced. They heard its words. And when they heard what it said, they didn't just go and tell the people what it, what it said. They repented. It changed their hearts. And they turned back to God. 
You know, I think it was Francis Chan who said, a lot of times Christians, it's like we play a Christian game of Simon Says. We, don't, we, don't, we just tell people what to do, and we just repeat things that the Bible says. We just don't actually do any of it. Like, we're really good at repeating things and, 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 you know, responding, you know, having these certain phrases that we use, but we're not living it out. Go read the book. And finally, go obey the book. When the scribe read the scriptures to the king, he realized the calamity that had come upon God's people was rooted in ignorance and disbelief. They didn't know any better. They were disobedient because they didn't know the truth. But once they knew the truth, they began to act differently. So find the book, read the book, and most of all, obey the book. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That means obedience to God comes after as a result of our love for him. We don't earn our love we don't earn his love by being obedient to him. But as a result of loving him, we want to be obedient. Because we believe the truth of scripture that his ways are better than our ways. My like working definition of sin is a chief substitute for something better that God has for us. Sin is the idea that my way is better than his way. And it never is. It never ever is. 2 Kings 23, then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found. In other words, he said, hey, everybody, everybody, you got to hear this. This isn't just for me. This is for all of us. So gather around. And then it says the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. He started himself saying, I'm going to repent. I'm going to renew my covenant to live for God. And then I'm asking everybody else, would you do it with me? To follow the Lord, to keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. And it says, then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. It wasn't just words. It was followed by action. We might have great intentions. There's a road I heard paved with great intentions. But these people didn't just say words. They immediately got rid of the things that were not of God. All of them. Each one of us are here this morning. And we have some things we need to get rid of. We have some idols. And we need to put God back on the throne we need to read the word of God and allow it to penetrate, not pick and choose the things that, you know, this, I like this verse, but not this one. And like at Teen Challenge, we used to call it the Burger King Bible, have it your way. People would say things. People misunderstand the word of God because they don't read the word of God. How many times have you heard people say money is the root of all evil? People say it all the time. I hear Christians say it all the time. That's not what it says at all. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's a pretty big distinction. But we've got to know the word of God. Later on in chapter 23, 
Another, another king comes on the scene. Verse 32, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Then in verse 37, another king comes on the scene. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. See, when we die, in the end, they're either going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant, or he did evil in the sight of the Lord. What do you want to hear? We don't know why. They wanted money. They wanted power. We know they wanted to live for self. And so their entire lives are summed up with they got what they wanted. They were their own king. And ultimately that meant they did evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to be described like Josiah. Ask the worship team to come up. I want people to say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning to the right or to the left. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Charles Spurgeon declared, if God has spoke, listen. If God has recorded his words in a book, search its pages with a believing heart. If you do not accept it as God's inspired word, I cannot invite you to pay any particular attention to it. But if you regard... This book, as of God, then I charge you, as I shall meet you at the judgment seat of Christ, study the Bible daily, and treat not the eternal God with disrespect, but instead delight yourself in his word. My desire, the desire of my heart is that you would find delight in the word of God. I love you, and God loves you. And he wants you to fall in love with him. And he wants to know you. And you've heard me say before, God loves you right where you are. But he loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you right where you are. You've probably heard before the phrase, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. So I'm going to invite you as we close in the song to go deeper. Because it's an invitation That's an invitation to taste and see for yourself. Not to take my word for it, that God is good. To take an honest look at your own life. And if Jesus isn't on the throne, if the Bible doesn't have its place, to make adjustments. To remove the idols, to get rid of the things God wants to take from you. Because when he does that, he always replaces them with something much better. So would you allow the Lord, whether you want to stand or sit or sing or cry, would you just allow the Lord to have his way in your life this morning? Amen.